0: It was just the 4th of May. there, and welcome to Forgotten Scenes, where we take a look at little microbursts of culture that burned hot and then vanished. Sometimes they left brilliant little legacies, sometimes they left nothing. We're going to talk about both. This first season is called The Freaks in the Barn. And we're talking about the glam, psychedelic explosion of Sioux City, Iowa in the early 1970s. This is Episode 3, The Barn. I'm Keith Pilley. So, last week, we talked about a couple of the bands that sprung up in the wake of David Bowie's brief stretch of being stranded with the spiders from Mars in Sioux City in 1972. One of these bands, the Visceral Realists, were a towering, showmanship-heavy, glam-rock guitar act built around the amazing musical rapport between Danny and Billy Hoska. Another band, Sammy Otto and the Jawbones, was centered on the messianic howling of its extremely loaded-for-every-show front woman, the self-described prairie witch Sammy Otto. Both bands quickly developed devoted followings among the Sioux City freak scene but ran into a major problem. If the freaks loved them, the normies who made up the majority of the usuals at Sioux City's established music venues loathed them and wanted nothing to do with what they saw as just all this weird shit. This week, fortunately, the Hoska brothers and Sammy Otto weren't the only jockey club regulars who'd been intoxicated by the Bowie vibe. If you lived in Sioux City in 1972... And wanted a fancy car. One of the first places you'd think of going to was Lowry Cadillac on the east side. Ed Lowry's dealership had opened up in the late 40s, shortly after World War II, and by the early 70s it was a mainstay of local business. Ed Lowry made a fortune in the post-war boom years selling Cadillacs and was diligent about taking that money and investing it into other endeavors. By the 1970s, he was quietly one of the richest men in Iowa. If Ed Lowry was quiet about his wealth, the same thing couldn't really be said about his son Teddy, although nobody actually called his son Teddy. The younger Lowry had been to Dallas once in his late teens for a few weeks to visit an uncle and came back so enamored with the place that he insisted that everyone call him Big Tex, and he drove around during the summer months at least in a Cadillac with steer horns mounted on the front to bolster his claim to being called Big Tex. Although Ed Lowry tried consistently to get his son interested in the family business empire, Big Tex Lowry didn't care about any of it. He saw himself as a culture maven, both high and low, and he figured that his role in life was to take some of the money his father kept piling up and help find good uses for it, supporting arts and culture in Sioux City. On one hand, this meant that Big Tex did his best to use his father's money to bring plays, orchestra concerts, and art exhibits to Sioux City whenever he could. But on the other hand, it meant that the fervent young rock and roller also tried to do whatever he could to bolster the local music scene. I am very glad to say that while I was researching this show, I got a chance to talk to Teddy Lowry at length. And if you'll indulge me, I'd like to share some of our interview. Okay, so I've never been clear on this. Were you there at the jockey on the nights that Bowie and the Spiders were there? You know, it
1: is, it is one of the great disappointments of my life that I was not there. I was in New York for the entire stretch. Officially, I went out to New York to meet these guys about getting a touring company of Hello Dolly to come through Sioux City, which is, on the surface of it, just stupid. Uh, but anyway, that's why I was in New York, and to be fair, while I was there, I tried to track down Lou Reed, staked out the factory, did a little peek in the door, that kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, that fell apart, and you know, I, I couldn't have imagined I would come home and find out that. I could have met fucking Bowie and Ronson if I had just stayed home and hung out at my cruddy old hometown bar. Yeah, that's, that's fucking brutal. It was. It was. I was crushed. But it was something to come back into the jockey and see what was going on. There was a, an energy in the place. And every night we would sit around and talk about all the stuff. We, all the stuff that, that they had discussed with Bowie. But I, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Bar full of Sioux City's weirdest, energized, full of ideas, full of questions. It was the kind of thing I've been trying to make happen for years, but I didn't know how to do it. And it turns out what you need is a stranded rock star who can't get home. Uh, And there was another current to it where suddenly Danny and Billy and Skip Chandler and a bunch, well a bunch of knights, they kind of disappeared and Sammy Otto and her whole ragtag crew. And that was exciting because we knew what was happening, but we didn't know how it was gonna turn out. There was like this incubation period where it felt like we'd watched some pretty cool caterpillars go into their cocoons, you know? And we didn't know what was gonna happen, who was gonna come out, but we were sure it was gonna be wild. And
0: and it was. It was wild. I, I, I uh, so of 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 the acts, which one which one did you end up seeing first? Uh,
1: I think it was the Hoskas. It was. It was the Visceral Realists. And damn, you know, I've I seen Billy and Danny play a thousand times. But you know, it was standard bar blues. You know, they're they're jamming on blues riffs, but then they come out as the realists and it, it just lit the place up. Billy could play. And suddenly it wasn't just corny hot blues, it was this relentless heavy reverb, you know, snaky shit, some kind of weird mix of like Mick Ronson meets Jimmy Page and Danny's holding it together on the bass singing about, I don't even know man, singing about space aliens and basketball players and big catfish and and weird shit. And, you know, that sounds that sounds awful when I describe it that way, but if you were there, it made sense. It made sense. And, you know, they, they had a showmanship angle really, really worked out really early. They were both really striking-looking men. they come out wearing these insane, shiny spaceman outfits. They got some glam paint jobs on their faces. And it was something. Before long, they sort of... Bringing a bunch of you know weird shit on stage, they brought out you know statues and mirrors and spinning shit and uh, big fish and all kinds of just crazy crazy stuff and and it was something it was you know I, I can't convey in words what it was like when those guys played the energy level in the room just skyrocketed and it's like you were suddenly in a in a better place it was like Sioux City was in a better place Sioux City was not in Sioux City it was now someplace else someplace better man
0: you know. <laughs> Man, I just, ah, I wish I could. have seen it. So how about the Jawbones? What, what was that like? They started not too long
1: after, and it was pretty quick to where both groups were going strong at the same time. The Jawbones were a little different from the Realists. Every set you just watched is, uh, you know, it was like the High Wire act. You know, the Live Wire, where you, you didn't know, is Sammy going to just lose her goddamn mind on the stage, or what was going to happen, but... But they were both great, it, it, both incredible. It was, just, uh, it was just so exciting to have these interesting, vital groups playing regular rotations in Sioux City.
0: I mean, yeah, like Jesus, multiple, multiple groups, that, that must have been completely new. It must have been super fucking exciting. It was exciting, it was exciting.
1: You know, to me, you know, speaking personally, to me, it was incredible. And, and, and you know, here's the thing, I loved it, my friends loved it. Our Little Circle, you know, it was some crazy shit. But, you know, Joe Average, the guy who comes into the jockey after a shift, you know, stacking bread in the old home bread factory, you know, he wanted to have a beer and hear some blues and go home. And that's it. And the visceral realists, he fucking hated it. And there were a lot more Joe Averages than there were us freaks. And Chauncey Myers, guy who owns the jockey, he knew it. His business began to take a hit. Every night he booked the realists or the Jawbones, and the same thing happened to Bill Tuamala down at Double X.
0: So uh, this is where the barn got started then? That's right. That's where the barn got started. Okay, so what's that story?
1: Okay, well, that, that's a long one.
0: What happened in the winter and early spring of 1973 is that Big Tex Lowry quickly saw that the developing music scene that was exciting him so much was in danger of fizzling out without a place to flourish. And then Lowry had an idea. He'd long been a fan of the Velvet Underground and had thrilled to stories about their ongoing residency at Andy Warhol's so-called factory in Manhattan. What if he did something like that in Sioux City? It was such an intense flash of light in my
1: head that I actually thought I'd had a stroke. I mean, my God, our own factory... Right here in Sioux City, you know, just like New York, a place where the groups could incubate, heads could gather, and, you know, we could just avoid all the hassle of having the freaks and the normies bumping elbows. There are all kinds of commercial buildings and warehouses sitting over unused by the river. All it took was gumption and a little bit of money, and I, I happened to have both.
0: In March of 1973, Lowry and his friend Lyle Derrick, who often acted as his business manager, bought an empty warehouse on the Missouri Riverfront. The warehouse had been built in the 30s to store farm equipment, so it was inevitably nicknamed The Barn. Lowry, Derek, and several other scenesters spent a couple of weeks refurbishing the warehouse with a stage, a sound system, lushly psychedelic decor involving a lot of neon and mylar, ample lounge space, a couple of bars, a workspace for visual artists, and so on. And at the end of March, the barn formally opened, with a blowout show where the visceral realists opened for Sammy Otto and the Jawbones. The barn was an instant sensation within the community. Lowry spent most of his waking hours there, and a lot of his unconscious ones too, to be honest. As did a rotating cast of Sioux City counterculture heads. The Visceral Realists and the Jawbones played shows at least once a week each, although usually not on the same night. Oh, oh, when Tex opened up the barn, that was such a magical thing. Magic. And I'm a person that doesn't use that language lightly. It was so beautiful in there, just in spirit. Never a huge crowd, maybe 200 on the busiest night, but however many people were there, they were always wonderful people, people who didn't give a shit about the status quo and just wanted a place where they could be human beings. You know, we played other places too, but shows at the barn were always the best because like we were abiding with our people. And even when we weren't playing, even when I was there to catch a show by the Realists or one of the other baby bands, it was just great to be there and hang out. There was always something going on. Although both the Visceral Realists and the Jawbones maintained their own practice spaces outside of the barn, during the daytime, the space doubled as a practice space for some of the crop of bands rising in the wake of the big first two. Of these new acts, one quickly separated itself from the pack by dint of their energy and urgency. The mysterious and agitated band known as The Thwarted. The Thwarted were four younger Sioux City scenesters, Nick Van Zandt, Jack Park, Tony Morrison, and Sam Hall. Mostly recent high school graduates, all freshly radicalized by books they'd gotten from Van Zandt's uncle, a political activist in Duluth, Minnesota. When the four decided to start a band, they wanted to build it around several ideological concepts. Their music, in both form and content, would highlight agitation and class struggle. Their group identity would emphasize the collective over the individual, so they started dressing in band uniforms, jeans, blue work shirts, and blue knit hats, and um, eschewing their given names in favor of new band identities. Citizen V, Citizen P, Citizen M, and Citizen H. Citizen V, the former Van Zandt, was the band's canniest curator of their image, and started telling everyone who asked what the thwarted were about that the group were, quote, farmer revolutionaries, end quote, who were, quote, on a mission to use rock and roll to break the fingers of capitalism before it finished strangling the life out of Iowa, end quote. Now, this all sounds like a lot, and it's easy to imagine a world where it just kind of collapses in on itself as a pile of hype and bullshit. But here's the thing. The Thwarted backed it up. They didn't have the musical polish of the visceral realists or the metaphysical grandiosity of the jawbones, but the Thwarted set themselves apart in other ways, with urgency and drive, and with, let's not shit ourselves, raw volume. And with message. And even though they militantly functioned as a collective instead of a group of individuals, with Citizen H's strange charisma at the microphone, singing and talking as a sort of salesman who was there to sell you against the concept of sales. The Thwarted's brand of political rock went over huge in the barn. One of their early songs, uh, their typical show opener from that era, called Fuck Those Ghouls, quickly became a sort of anthem among barn scenesters and helped elevate the thwarted up above the other second wave Sioux City bands, up into the pantheon with the realists and the jawbones. And this all happened pretty quickly in the spring of 1973, after Big Tex Lowry opened the barn. By early summer, a self-sustaining scene was in full flower there. There was just essentially always something happening at the barn. Although in some stretches of the early morning, that something consisted of a lot of people sleeping off whatever had gone down the night before. There's usually a lot more than that. As you'd expect, there were pretty much constantly bands either practicing or performing or trying out for the bookers. Big Tex Lowry was very attached to the idea of the barn as more than just a music venue, though. So an entire wing of the warehouse was set aside as workspace for visual artists. In practice, this meant that there were usually a couple of very large canvases hanging on a wall or spread out on the floor with some kind of messy, abstract expressionist work being smeared onto it. But Lowry and the crowd at the barn were happy just to have something going on. The atmosphere at the barn was one of almost non-stop creative party. A lively drug scene bubbled just under the surface. Lowry's one worry about the place was being raided by Sioux City police for tracking, And of course, the in house bars did a lively business. The barn scene, anchored, of course, by the interchangeable residencies of the visceral realists, Sammy Otto and the Jawbones, and pretty soon the Thwarted, began to pull misfits and heads from around the upper Midwest. One of these was a recently divorced man from Sioux Falls named Jim Gaines. Hearing about big things going on in Sioux City, and feeling like there was nothing to anchor him in Sioux Falls anymore, Gaines moved to Sioux City with his young son, Chris, and quickly established himself as one of the barn's fixtures. The older Gaines often brought his son with him to happenings at the barn and spent a lot of time absolutely out of his mind on whatever substances he could get his hands on. Chris Gaines, an adaptable kid, spent a lot of his time hanging out in the barn's musical areas acting as a sort of combined gopher and mascot for whatever bands were making noise in the barn at any given time. As 1973 wound on, Big Tex Lowry quickly found that he was a lot more interested in being the presiding spirit of the barn than in actually running it. His father's capacity for numbers and budgets, he liked to say, had skipped the generation. As such, the actual management of the barn—the management of cash flow, the ticketing, the maintenance, the licensing, the insurance, the booking, the thousand little boring mundane details that have to be taken care of to keep any kind of large enterprise going—this all increasingly fell to Lowry's longtime associate, Lyle Derrick. Derrick had been Lowry's friend going way back. Uh, If you remember, he'd even helped Lowry get the barn going. And in June of 73, his role was formalized as Lowry had him file paperwork to establish The Barn as a company with Lowry as the owner and Derek as its chief executive officer. Derek also formally went on Big Texas payroll as Lowry's personal business manager with power of attorney. Uh, <laughs> if you know how this sort of thing goes, I'm sure you can right here see the storm clouds off on the horizon already. And uh, you, you're not wrong. But that's all a long ways off. In the meantime, uh, we, we got a Golden Age to discuss, with a cameo appearance by, at least depending on who you ask, the devil himself. Thanks a lot for uh, listening to this week's episode. Um, as always, if you would be inclined to spread the word, you know, if this is your sort of thing, I'd really appreciate it. Um, you know, uh, several other podcasters who I admire like to point out that. Uh, person-to-person word of mouth is the true way that cultural things spread so you know if there's anyone in your life anyone in your life who would be into this uh let them know thanks a ton you know also rating and reviewing online is very helpful mostly though just thank you for listening and uh i'll talk to you next week when we see the devil bye it was just a the fourth of May. Everything
1: had turned up gray It set off across the sea We thought it just occurred